Outstanding music this morning, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a... Yeah. So we're on the, the last week of the Heart Principles. I'm going to remind you that these are the uh, five unspoken requests we make of each other, according to Dr. Roy Trueblood. Uh, hear and understand me. Even if you disagree, don't make me wrong. Acknowledge the greatness within me. Remember to look for my loving intentions and tell me the truth with compassion. And this week we're going to be talking about tell me the truth with compassion. I'll remind you of this overarching verse uh, where Paul encourages us saying, uh, I therefore the prisoner and the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we offer thanks for your presence with us on this morning. It started off so uh, gray and cloudy, and we just ask that you uh, clear the cobwebs out of our minds and shine your light into our hearts and spirits. Uh, let the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to tell you a little bit as we get into this, uh, this uh, passage about telling me the truth with compassion. I just kind of reminded, this is, this is about going in and talking to someone uh, when uh, there has been a behavior or an act that has created a rift in the relationship. Uh, this isn't about uh, uh, trying to persuade someone to agree with your politics. That's, that's up on the, even if you disagree, don't make me wrong stuff. This is about uh, dealing with people when they have done something that particularly uh, is hurtful to you. And if you read on into uh, Ephesians a little further, where Paul is encouraging the church in Ephesus uh, into maturity, uh, he says, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. And again, he's using this image of the, of the body to, to talk about the church <clears throat> and, and what it means to build it up in love, to, to grow it in strength uh, and for each one of us, our, each our different parts that we contribute in that. But for all of us, he calls us that middle part, you know, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. It's growing into all the maturity and, and all the fullness of Christ is, is what we are all called to do. So uh, thinking about that, as I was thinking about this passage, uh, I, I went to one of the passages uh, in Luke's gospel where Jesus uh, is pretty truthful with someone. Uh, and uh, this is called the parable of the rich young ruler, or the story of the rich young ruler, uh, where a certain ruler comes and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I, I already have a problem with that question going into that, because you hear what he says, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, you know, what, what do you do to inherit something? And nothing, right? I mean, it's just because you're the child of whoever it is, right? I mean, you don't, you don't do anything to earn that. And, and so in the same way here, and you know, the ruler comes and says, what must I do? And the real thing is, is it's not what you do, it's what God does. But, but Jesus doesn't correct him around that, even though he's, he's asking the wrong question, I think. Uh, Jesus says, uh, why do you call me good? 
No one is good but God alone. Okay, now you've all heard this story before. Now let me ask you something. Is he correcting the young man or is he claiming his divinity? No one's good but God alone, so why are you calling me good? Well, obviously, if he's calling him good, that means you're God alone, right? I mean, so I don't know if you've ever caught the kind of double entendre there in what he answers to the gentleman. And then he says, you know, you, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man replied, I've kept all of these since my youth. Really? That's what I want to say. Really? You've kept all these? You've done this perfectly? Really? But Jesus doesn't say that to him. I mean, you know, that's what I probably would have said. But anyway, Jesus says to him, uh, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, the young ruler became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And most of the time when we read this and we hit that last sentence, we hear that as a word of critique, don't we? We hear it kind of as a, a critical kind of statement. Uh, and, and I think we read it that way because we are so used to being uh, critical and judgmental of each other that we tend to read that into what Christ says. But I want to suggest to you maybe you, you should hear that differently. Uh, tell me the truth with compassion. There are several places in the Scripture where we're told that Jesus has compassion on the people or on the crowds. And that, that word in Scripture, compassion, it literally means that my heart is with you. you know, my, his heart is with them. We, we even today will say, oh, my heart goes out to someone. We'll make that kind of reference. But this is my heart is with you. So Jesus, in speaking to this young man, he, what if he has compassion on him? What if we look at it that way? His, his heart's with him. And the young man comes to him first and he asks the wrong question. What do I have to do? When the answer really isn't, it's not about what you do, it's about what God does. But then you hear as he goes on, well, I, I followed all the rules, check, 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 right? And, and so Jesus says, okay, you've done all that. What, what, what's the problem? The problem is you're trying to figure out how to do it on your own. So you followed all the rules, you've amassed all this great wealth, you're very self-sufficient, and, and you need to learn how to be dependent upon God. So sell your wealth, give it to the poor, and then follow me. You know, move from that place of, of taking care of yourself and supporting yourself to that place of relying upon God. And then you will discover what it means to inherit the kingdom. And what the young man says is... Uh, Nope, can't do it. In that moment, he chooses, instead of following and serving the Lord, he chooses to serve his wealth. And if Jesus' heart's with him, maybe that last sentence is actually a word of lament, a word of sorrow, because Jesus recognizes the choice the young man's made. And that, that compassion, boy, that makes a big difference in the way we, we say things, in the way we hear them, and the way we understand them. You know, it's really easy for us uh, to, to tell the truth without compassion, right? We're good at that. And sometimes we're not really that truthful either. But, but the call comes to us, you know, to tell the truth with compassion. This is what it means to build the body up. Jesus, speaking directly to his disciples and the community of faith, says, Listen, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. 
But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm going to circle back on this in a little bit, but, but one of the things I want you to hear right up the front is, is this thing about, you know, you go first to the person uh, that you have the problem with, the person who has uh, done something that that's, you have found hurtful, and you go directly to them. We call this the Matthew 18 principle, uh, and some of you have run into that before when you've come to me to talk about someone else in the church or another member of the staff or something, and, and you had me tell you, okay, well, have you talked to that person first? And you know, I haven't talked to him yet. Well, okay, we, you and I can't have this conversation until you go and have that conversation with them. I mean, you need to honor that person first by going directly to them before you come to me. And that's Matthew 18. And, and so it's a way of showing honor to others in the church. You go to them directly alone, just you and that individual. And then if they don't listen, you take some others with you to support you know, what, what you have said. And, and then if they still don't listen, then he says, you, know, you, you tell it to the church. Now, I want to be really clear. That does not mean that I'm going to get up here on a Sunday morning and tell everybody in the church what your sins are. Okay? So relax. Calm down. Uh, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. Uh, remember, in this time, when you're talking about the church, it's a smaller group. It's more like what we think of as a house church. Uh, and this small community then would go to that person and try to hold them accountable. Years ago, I, uh, I sat in the living room as part of a group that was doing an intervention in Corpus Christi. Uh, it was a, a member of our Mace community down there, and uh, his alcoholism was uh, taking over his life. And, uh, you know, his friends had talked to him, his wife had talked to him, various groups had talked to him, and finally they, they had called us together as the church uh, to confront him and to say, you know, you're destroying your life, you're, you're destroying your family, uh, and we can't be part of that. We can't support you in that. And we're not going to support that, we're not going to enable that. And his response that evening was he became very angry with us and stormed out of the room and, and really, at that point in time, we didn't know if anything fruitful would ever come out of that conversation. But we had worked our way through this process to raise that issue up to him and speak to him. Uh, you start with the individual one-on-one, -on -one, then you bring a few others alongside, and then the body confronts. It's this process of, of challenging someone, this Matthew 18 principle that Jesus lays out for us. Um, when Dr. Trueblood talks about doing this, uh, he's really talking mainly about that one-on-one -on -one part. Uh, and the first thing he says is, you know, there's reasons that we sometimes don't want to confront someone about something they've done. Uh, maybe we're insecure about handling the conversation. We're afraid we'll make it worse. Uh, maybe we're afraid that the other person's going to counter-confront us with one of our own skeletons in our closets. And let's face it, we all have those, right? We know those. Uh, maybe we're afraid that we're going to lose that friendship, or if it's a coworker, that we're going to lose the respect of that colleague. Uh, maybe we're afraid that they're going to retaliate against us. Uh, and you may have other reasons for, for why you would back away from that. Um, there's also some valid reasons why you would not uh, want to confront someone. Uh, one, the relationship's just not one of, of great importance. You know, you don't need to confront the person at the checkout line, okay? 
I mean, I know some of you like, but you don't need to do that. I mean, this, you're probably not ever going to see him again, so, you know, it's okay. Uh, second, you know, the conflict may not be one that can be resolved. Remember, when you're, when you're in some of these conflicts, sometimes it's the, uh, you know, even if we disagree, don't make me wrong more than it is the tell me the truth with compassion kind of peace. Uh, in December, you know, we had a big wedding in our family, and as different clan were gathering together uh, at one of those events, um, <clears throat> one of the family members uh, kind of launched into this political diatribe into the middle of all of that. And, uh, and my family is probably a lot like your family. We're kind of all over the map politically. And, and so I, I took his arm, and I kind of pulled him off to the side, and I said, you know, I said, you know, you're, you're, you're treading on thin ice here and you're going to have some people who are going to get really upset about that. And that's not what we're here to do. We're here to celebrate this wedding. So I'm going to ask you just to walk away from that. And he went, oh, oh, okay, right? We weren't going to resolve that conflict that day. It wasn't going to happen. And it was time to leave it alone. Uh, and he probably wasn't going to resolve that conflict at all. If you know some of my family, it's, they can be pretty tough. Uh, at last, you know, sometimes the problem really belongs to me. You know, sometimes uh, somebody does something and, and I get my feelings hurt. And, and if I'm honest, when I really start thinking about it, what I realize is they haven't done anything wrong. The problem really is just mine. I don't, I don't really have anything to confront them with or to talk to them about. I just need to deal with my own stuff. Uh, and sometimes we just need to, to kind of grow up and be mature enough to own that and claim it for what it is. Having said that, uh, Dr. Trueblood gives us basically six, six steps uh, about how to confront someone, how to tell them the truth with compassion. And the first step is to ask for time. Uh, you know, if you're going to have a real conversation with someone, ask them to set aside the time to have that with you. Uh, don't do what we sometimes talk about as a drive-by. Uh, you know, you're, you're out here in the lobby or you're out in the parking lot and somebody goes, walks by and says something to you and then they just walk off, right? That, that's, not, that's not a conversation. That's an attack. Uh, you're not trying to talk to them, you're just hitting them. Uh, and, and so, you know, if you're going to be serious about this, ask for time so that you can actually have a decent conversation. Second, you set the climate and say why you're there. Uh, we in Texas, we're really bad, you know, we get together and we, we start our conversations. Well, it's hot, isn't it? It's Texas. It's summer. It's always hot. I mean, but, you know, we do this. We, have, we kind of beat around the bush for a while before we get to where we're going. Uh, and, and you're probably going to do that some, but once you get there, tell them why you wanted to have this conversation with them. Be honest with them and tell them directly what it is. Uh, state your concerns or reservations. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, having this conversation is going to make you angry or it's going to damage our friendship or whatever. I mean, be, be honest about where you're at with that person. And third, third state your case. Again, own your responsibility. I, I have yet to be in a conflict with anyone where there wasn't at least a piece of it that belonged to me. And, and I suspect if you think about it, you'll find that that's true for you as well. Uh, there's always a piece that belongs to us. So you need to own that because that opens the door for a more honest conversation. But then you need to specifically describe the behavior you're addressing. Don't talk in generalities. Talk specifically. And hear that. It may sound something more, instead of doing what we do a lot of times, uh, we go, hey, you know, when you do this, you really tick me off. Notice the finger. Always a bad sign when you start using the finger like this, right, pointing to people. Uh, instead of saying, when you do this, I find myself getting angry. I'm owning it. And I'm going to say specifically what it is they're doing. Be specific so that it can be addressed. 
The fourth step is listen. Once you've said that, listen to what the other person has to say. Too often we forget this, and this is a really crucial piece. Give them your full attention. That's why it's important to have asked for this time. Give them your full attention. And show that you're really listening to them by using listening checks. Okay, so what I hear you saying is, and see if they come back and say, yeah, that's right. You're going to be surprised how often it is you're going to do that. And they're going to go, well, no, that's not exactly what I mean. And then they'll go back and forth uh, before you really have understood what they're saying to you. Uh, But listen to them. Really, really pay attention. Fifth, um, fifth, you negotiate. (laughs) You know, what is it that I want different in this relationship? What do I, what is it that I want to see change? Uh, And again, you need to be specific not general, so that they're not left guessing what you want, but you specifically ask for the changes you want. You offer help. How can I help you do that? You know, how can I be part of it? What can I do to make this work better for you? And then you tell them what the positives and the negatives are. You know, if we can work this out, our friendship will be closer. Or if we can't resolve this, I am not going to spend time with you. Let them know those pieces. And finally, after you've been through all of that, restate any agreement you've reached. Again, this is what you're going to find if you're, you're my, based on my experience is you're, you're going to think you've both agreed on something. You're going to say, okay, so we both agree, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to go, no, we don't both agree on that. Okay, well, let's start over again now. I've missed something. Uh, be sure that you are both on the same page and you're talking about the same thing and, and then agree on how you're going to follow up with that and always let them know that you appreciate it, that you appreciate them taking the time to sit down with you and do this and listen to you because it always ends better when it ends on a note of affirmation. So in the, in the winter of 98-99, we had... a. Uh, my wife's grandmother and then her mother and her father died all in a three-month period. And, and right at the same time, we had a 500-year flood. Uh, 65 people in my church lost their homes, 12 of them permanently. Uh, and, and my life got really intensely crazy for a while. I was working 14-hour and 15-hour days, day after day after day after day after week after week after week. And I always felt like I needed to be in two or three places at the same time. It was just insane. Up to that point in time, my lay leader in that congregation and I had had a very uh, close and, and kind of casual working relationship. She was a retired school administrator. She was really sharp. And in a smaller congregation, your lay leaders, your, your right-hand person. Uh, you know, they're the folks that know people in the church. They know the stories of the church. People listen to them, and they bring information back to you. So you work very closely with that person uh, in that congregation. And, and we had had a great relationship to that time and worked very closely uh, but she had gotten accustomed to, if she needed uh, you know, to talk to me or something, she'd be gotten accustomed to just kind of pulling me aside for 15 or 30 minutes whenever she wanted to. And all of a sudden, I didn't have 15 or 30 minutes to do that. And so since she'd been trained in this, uh, she called my secretary, and she set a time to sit down with me um, and, and sat down and said, uh, I, I, I want to talk to you because, you know, we've had this very close relationship for all this time. And she says, lately, I just feel like you're pushing me away. And I feel like you're just finding me to be a bother. And, and this is really hurting. And, and I'm afraid it's going to damage our relationship. And I'm afraid just coming here today that it's going to make you angry. Uh, and you're going to feel like I'm wasting your time. And, and what I realized was 
just in her sharing that. Yeah, I have been doing that, haven't I? Because I was so overloaded and so overwhelmed that I, I just I didn't have those little 15 and 30 minute windows anymore to give her. And so instead of telling her that directly, I just kind of been avoiding that. So we then went into this conversation where we had a, a really good conversation um, back and forth with each other about what was going on and the behavior and how I was handling it, which I had to recognize, you know, I was not doing it properly. Uh, and, and we began to talk and she really listened to what I had to tell her. Uh, we had a, a really fruitful conversation uh, as we worked our way through this thing and, and talked back and forth. And I realized, you know, I, I, I was not treating her well. And, uh, and, and she realized that she was asking something I couldn't give. And so we, we kind of had to have a little negotiation about how are we going to do this? And, and what's this going to look like? Because I valued her too much that, you know, I, I didn't want to just, you know, in this kind of uh, working relationship that we had had each other. And so we finally ended up agreeing on a, a time of the week that we would save for each other and we would set aside to check base with each other. Uh, she suggested to me a visual signal that I had so that if she walked up and I just could not deal with it at the time, I could let her know I can't deal with this right now. Uh, and so she would understand that, you know, I, I saw her and I recognized her. I just couldn't take the time away to do that. And, uh, and we worked that through and she said, how can I help you? And I offloaded some things onto her. And, and by the time we finished the conversation, you know, starting off a conversation with somebody who says, you know, I just feel like you're ignoring me. You end the conversation, feel good about it. Doesn't happen very often. But by the time we ended, we both felt so much better about that. And we continued to have a very close working relationship for the rest of the years I was in that congregation. In fact, uh, the summer I moved here, some of you will remember, it all kind of happened at the last minute, and we'd already made vacation plans. So uh, when, when we got into July, Randy Berry's uh, moving company came, uh, the company he worked with came, and they packed all of our things up out of the parsonage down in Seguin, and then we went and got on the plane and flew out for a couple of weeks of vacation. Uh, so when we flew back in, you know, we had no house anymore, they were already in the process of repainting and cleaning it and everything, getting it ready for the next person. We stayed with Wayne and Nell, with my lay leader and her husband. We stayed at her home. She invited us in. Uh, she let us use her laundry to wash all of our laundry from our vacation. Uh, she fed us. She took care of us. Uh, she ushered, uh, drove us around because uh, I had to go back to Seguin for closing worship, for a farewell reception. And then on the Monday before I came up here, I had a closing where we were closing on the building project and where I uh, put them in debt uh, because you know, it's one of the things I do. Uh, so, uh, so, I mean, they took very good care of us. And some of you who have done Partners in Ministry remember that uh, I invited her to come up here and help lead the training after I got up here. Uh, but that time, she honored me by coming to me and creating the opportunity for us to take care of this problem. Raise it up to me, make me aware of it, and, and for us to work our way through it using this process. Because if you'll remember when Jesus is speaking uh, about this you know, problem of, of dealing people, the goal, the goal of it is to regain that one. The goal is not to beat them down. The goal is not to be triumphant. The goal is, is to regain that person in that relationship. And she did such an amazing job with that, that uh, we did that with each other. In the same way, if you read through this passage, uh, you notice if, if you have somebody who's recalcitrant, at the very end, 
Jesus says, you know, if they want to even listen to the church, let this person be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. So, So let me ask you something. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He went and had dinner at their houses, didn't he? That was one of the criticisms. This man eats with Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners. He called one to be his disciple, Matthew. Uh, He went to Zacchaeus' house, right? It doesn't mean he cut them off, but it meant he reached out to them even more so with the gospel. So several years after our uh, intervention in Corpus, I'd watch my friend uh, destroy his family. His wife had divorced him and took their son and left. I watched him lose his job. I watched him lose his house in a foreclosure. Uh, I watched him living out of his car. Watched him lose his car. Went one night to the jail to see him when he'd been picked up for public intoxication. And he said, I, I've, I've lost everything. And the group that had had that intervention with him so many years ago all came around him and began to support him and to help him rebuild his life. One of them became his sponsor. And we began to walk with him through that as he put his life back together. As he became sober and he found employment again and got a place to live, as he reconnected with his son. Your uh, former pastor now, Bishop Lowry, and I uh, co-celebrated his wedding when he got remarried. He ended up serving as a chaplain at one of our Methodist hospitals in San Antonio for many years before he retired. Gentiles and tax collectors. That group went back to him and ministered to him and shared the gospel with him as he rebuilt his whole life. See, when we, when we tell the truth with compassion, uh, our heart is with their heart. Uh, the heart of Christ in us seeks the heart of Christ in them. And we enable healing and wholeness to flourish. That's what it means to truly tell the truth with compassion. Let's pray. Mighty Father, we give you thanks that you are with us in this. Uh, We confess to you that oftentimes we... uh, We really just want to strike out and hurt people. Uh, We want to say things that are harsh. Um, And we thank you that you temper us in that, and we ask that you keep teaching us uh, that discipline, that you place within us the love of Christ so that our hearts may look on other people the way Christ does. We might see them with compassion, and our heart might go out to them so that we might speak the truth to them not to tear them down or to hurt them, but to build them up and to bring wholeness and healing to them and and to our relationship with them. So walk alongside of us and put your truth within us, but put your heart within us that our hearts might reach out to your hearts and others. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.